Your Bibles turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 22. Uh, we're continuing this series on wisdom and uh, how that God uh, directs us through this book on experiencing the best kind of life, the life that we want. Um, while you're turning there, how many of y'all know the story of Pinocchio? Is there anyone here who does not know the story of Pinocchio? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Well, since you know the story, I won't retell the story, but you, you know how that Pinocchio had a, a puppet master, the maker. His name was Geppetto, and Geppetto made Pinocchio. Now, Pinocchio uh, was a unique kind of marionette or puppet. Uh, he could talk, and, and he could walk, and he could run, but he was still not alive. He, he had all these different ways of looking like he was alive, but he was still not fully alive. And, and in fact, the whole story revolves around Pinocchio, uh, who looked like he was alive, trying to uh, find ways so that he could finally become a real live boy. Yeah, he wanted to become a boy, and, and, and yet he wasn't. Uh, he was still just a puppet. Now, I'm, I'm, I, as we look at Proverbs 22, I want you to understand that many of us are living our lives like Pinocchio. Uh, we uh, are going through the motions of being alive. We're acting like we're alive. We're chasing after any kind of carnival that we can get hold of to make ourselves feel somewhat alive. But deep down in the core of our being, we are still dissatisfied. Now, with Pinocchio, you needed the, the, the uh, what, what, it wasn't, wasn't the little cricket. The little cricket's name was Jiminy. And, uh, but you needed the, uh, what, fairy godmother or whoever it was? What, what was it? The tooth fairy? Uh, the, the lady with the wand. Um, isn't that right? Blue? Fairy, the blue fairy. No, there's a reason why I didn't remember that. Uh, how silly. Anyway, so she uh, found that, that, that uh, finally Pinocchio could be a boy um, but, and became fully alive. Neat little story, but um, the, the challenge with that story is it's, it's made up. It's make-believe. There's no truth to it. There's no such thing as a blue fairy, right? Can we all agree on that? Oh, I know some of y'all are just sad, just, just sad contrarians. Anyway, so as we're looking at our life, we really are like Pinocchio, not fully alive. There's a disconnect between who we are and who we want to be and how we want to live and the life that we long to know. Um, uh, the, the, there is a deep dissatisfaction, and we need something to give us satisfaction, a satisfied life, the life that we want. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22 uh, hits on this, uh, at least partially, and, and Proverbs 22, look at verse 4. Proverbs 22, verse 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Okay, so, so you look at that, and that's a big promise. So by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. So what is the promise there? Uh, the promise is when you have humility and you have fear of the Lord, then the reward will be riches, honor, and life. 
is he really mean that if I am humble and I fear the Lord that I'll get really rich or I'll have great honor or that I will have life? Well, no, not really. What he's doing is he's using those three terms to point to a picture of a satisfied life where you have the riches. Now, riches is not I have all the money in the world. Riches is I am satisfied and content with the financial resources at my disposal. And then honor, that's not where you have prestige because you are that somebody, somebody, somebody special. Uh, but you have honor uh, because you are satisfied by what God gives, and he honors you. And life there, life is not just uh, going through the motions. It's not just speaking and talking and jumping and dancing and going to a carnival, but rather life there is the nourishment and the provision, the, the satisfaction of life. So as we break apart verses 1 through 5, we begin with this big picture theme, okay, um, that, that God wants us to have a satisfied life, riches, honor, and life. He wants us, he created us to experience the life that we want, riches, honor, life. He, he created us to, uh, to be satisfied. In fact, that's the way how it began in Genesis 3. Do you all remember Genesis 1, 2, and 3? That's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the story of creation, he made Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve walked in the, in, in, in the Garden of Eden. Now, the Garden of Eden was paradise. And they lived in fellowship with God, where they walked with God in the cool of the eating of the garden. They were satisfied. But then they were dissatisfied, and the dissatisfaction that erupts on the scene of human history in Genesis 3 is the same great enemy of satisfaction that you and I face. Can I tell you, look at me, y'all say, you know, the enemy of satisfaction, the enemy of me being a satisfied person is not your friends. The enemy of me being a satisfied person is not your job. The great enemy of a satisfied life is not what people have done to me. The great enemy of a satisfied life is not what I don't have, what I wish I had. The greatest enemy to a satisfied life is sin. And you have sinned, I have sinned, we've all sinned. And that's what creates a sense of dissatisfaction in us. If you look in uh, Proverbs 22, look at verse 8. He who sows sin will reap. And what's the word there in verse 8? Sorrow. Sorrow. Do anybody have calamity? Uh, vanity, if you knew American Standard. It's, it, it's the idea of trouble, 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 trouble. Sorrow, 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 sorrow. Destruction, destruction, destruction. Now, I want you to hear this. If you sow sin, you will always reap sorrow. If you sow sin, you will always reap death-dealing blows. The enemy of a satisfied life is not all these things that everybody else is doing or I'm not getting. The greatest enemy of a satisfied life, the greatest enemy to the life we want is sin, period. And that's what erupted on the scene of human history in Genesis 3. Here people were living a satisfied life, Adam and Eve in a satisfied life in the Garden of Eden. Sin takes hold, dissatisfaction then reigns, and all of us are on this cursed course of a dissatisfied life. 
That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 is talking about. Ephesians chapter 2 says um, that, that we were dead in our sin. Nothing more dissatisfying than being dead. You are dead in your sin and in your trespasses, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who now works among the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once conducted yourselves in the lust of the flesh and of the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And the picture of of, of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is what sin is. Uh, uh, reaps in our lives. What, what we reap because of sin, we are disconnected from a holy God and therefore we are perennially and eternally dissatisfied. I want you to hear this. Because of sin, because of your sin, because of my sin, we are disconnected from God. We are not in his family. We are not close to him. And because we are not close to him, we are dissatisfied. That is the source of dissatisfaction in every human heart. Philosophers of days past, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every heart. That our soul is forever restless until we find our rest in God. There is a disconnect between us and a satisfied life because we are separated from God by our sin. When you sow sin, you reap sorrow, death, destruction. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, and here's the good news, all right? So here's the good news. Genesis, God created us for, uh, to, to live a satisfied life in paradise, in fellowship with him. Sin enters the scene of human history. We're all on this cursed course of a dissatisfied life because my sin separates me from God. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, living a Pinocchio-type life, God has made us alive together with him in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus came to reverse the curse. Jesus came to give us a pathway to a satisfied life. He came to to take us in our dissatisfied existence and impart to us the opportunity to be fully alive. Not just going through the motions, but literally to be fully alive by his grace, through faith in him, through faith in him, in Jesus. The the pathway that Jesus paved in order to take care of our sin, which is the greatest enemy of of satisfaction. The greatest, have you heard this before? The greatest enemy of a satisfied life is sin. The greatest enemy of a satisfied life is sin. The greatest enemy of a satisfied life is sin. And that is the greatest enemy, your sin, my sin. It's the greatest enemy of a satisfied life. Jesus came to take care of the greatest enemy of a satisfied life. Through his death on the cross, he died for our sin to provide a pathway for us to find forgiveness for our sin. He was raised from the dead to give us a pathway to experience a justified life. And when you and I 
repent of our sin, turn away from our sin, and trust in Jesus, in that moment, there is this great transaction of God's grace as we put our faith and trust in Christ. In that transaction of God's grace, we who believe on Jesus are made brand new, new creations in Christ. We are made brand new, fully alive. We are made brand new. We're part of God's family. In that transaction of God's grace, Jesus takes all the imperfections of Eric Thomas and he kills it on the cross as he dies in, in my, in, on the cross in my place. And he plants upon Eric Thomas all of his perfection. And in the planting of, on me of all his perfection, he writes his name upon my heart. I belong to him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to him, and he has obliterated the enemy of a satisfied life. So why is it that followers of Jesus are still dissatisfied? All right, can we all agree that followers of Jesus are still dissatisfied at times and seasons? Can we all agree about that? So why is that? If Jesus has conquered the great enemy of a satisfied life through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, then, and, and, and I trusted in Jesus to rescue me from my sin, why is it that I'm still dissatisfied? It's because I'm not living up to the name that he wrote on my heart. You see, sin still remains the greatest enemy to a satisfied life for Eric Thomas. Even though I, all the accumulated guilt of my sin has been paid for by the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that I, I still, as a follower of Jesus, you still, as followers of Jesus, are choosing a dissatisfied life when you choose sin. If you sow sin, you reap sorrow. And by the way, sin, the term for sin there in verse 8 means missing the mark. It means walking a path outside the will of God. So what, what, what are we going to learn here? All right, so the life we want is a life filled with satisfaction. And the satisfaction of life belongs to those who live life God's way, who are not missing the mark. By the way, that's what fear of the Lord is in verse 4. Fear of the Lord, and we've seen this in Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, Proverbs 15.33, and now in Proverbs 22, verse 4, that the fear of the Lord is the key that unlocks wisdom. And fear of the Lord and wisdom mean that we live life God's way. We live life according to the will of the one who has written his name upon our heart. Now, satisfaction... A satisfied life, even for followers of Jesus, still belongs to those who are living life the way Jesus lived his life. Just because I'm a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that I'm immune from the, uh, from the effects of sin. He who sows sin will always reap sorrow, calamity, destruction. Today, as a follower of Jesus, today, as a follower of Jesus, the greatest enemy to a satisfied life for you 
It's not, I don't have enough friends. It's not that I'm not involved in a sporting event. It's not that I didn't uh, do well on my fantasy football team. It's not that my team lost, although my team won yesterday. Yes. Uh, the greatest enemy of a satisfied life is, is not, I need more money or I need less bills. The greatest enemy to a satisfied life is sin for followers of Jesus. All right, so, so how do we deal with this sin thing in our life? How do we stop missing the mark? And I think that's what Proverbs 22 is talking about. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says that once we have been rescued by God's grace, we're no longer separated from God, but now we're part of God's family, and we are called his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in them. We are his workmanship. You know what that means? It means that we are his work of art. And the way a work of art is satisfied is when that work of art fulfills the intention of the one who made that work of art. So are we fulfilling the intention of God who made us brand new as followers of Jesus Christ. Are we living up to the name that Jesus wrote on our heart? In uh, Proverbs 22, verse 1, I think that's part of what, what uh, we can see uh, on this side of the cross in the empty tomb when, when the writer of Proverbs says, a good name is to be chosen uh, rather than great riches. What, what he's saying is there, there is a name that is of greater value than the greatest of riches. What is that name? What does that mean? It, it, it's pointing to the character of a person. It's pointing to a character of a person that, that is in sync with the character of Jesus Christ. It's living up to the name. I am a follower of Jesus. That means something, right? Doesn't it, doesn't it mean something? Uh, you go to school, and people know that you're a follower of Jesus, and yet you behave in a way that is inconsistent with the character of Christ, then make no mistake, you are choosing a dissatisfied way of life. You're missing the mark. You're sowing sin. You're going to reap sorrow because you're not living life God's way. But if I go to school or go to work or in my neighborhood and I choose to live up to the name that Jesus has written upon my heart, then I will experience riches, honor, life. I will experience a satisfied life. That's what fear of the Lord is talking about. I need to live up to the name. Whose name? Jesus' name. Not mine, the name of Jesus. I need to live up to what that means. So how can I live up to the name of Jesus? How can I live life God's way? How can I experience a satisfied life? There are like all kinds of different ways we find in Scripture of, of living life God's way. Great counsel throughout the pages of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. But in Proverbs chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, I want us to lean into three specific ways. And the first is we need to show grace to others. The second part of Proverbs 22, verse 1 uh, it says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Loving favor is better than silver and, silver and gold. Loving favor. What is that word, loving favor? It's grace. It's a Hebrew term, hain. It literally, at its root form, means to stoop or to bend in an act of kindness to another. That's what it means. It's what God did 
uh, for Noah in Genesis 6, that Noah found favor, Hain, in the sight of God. That meant that God stooped low in an act of kindness, not because Noah was perfect, but because Noah uh, was uh, living his life in best he could in a pleasing way to the Lord. God showed him grace and didn't kill him. And, and it's what Jesus has done for us. Do you realize that grace, uh, this stooping or bending in an act of kindness, is the very picture of God in Christ Jesus? God became man and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is a picture of God showing us grace. So what, what's the point here? Well, if I'm going to live up to the name that Jesus has written on my heart, then I'm going to show grace to others the way Jesus has shown grace to me. My wife made popular a saying in our house, and it's, you know, we have different sayings uh, in our home, uh, a few of them, a handful maybe, uh, like uh, live to make God smile and that kind of thing. But she, she made popular in our home kind of a thematic that we want to hold on to, that she and I especially want to hold on. We want to pass it on to our children. And, and, and it's not original with us. It's not original with her, but, but it is something that really captured us. And, and, and it's this. Okay, so here's, here's the theme, the motto. Um, leave people better than when you found them. That, that means that we show grace. It means we show grace even when it's hard to show grace. And sometimes it's hard to show grace, right? Sometimes it's hard to show grace. What does it look like to show grace? Well, apart from the picture of Jesus who died for sinners, um, those are people who don't deserve grace. God gave it anyway through Christ. Um, there are passages in Scripture Ephesians again, since I'm kind of leaning into Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, that grace looks like this. Here's what grace looks like. It's, it means I'm going to be kind. It means I'm going to be compassionate. It means I'm going to be tender-hearted. It means I'm going to be forgiving. It means I'm going to live a life of love. Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound great? To show grace means that I'm going to be kind, not a jerk. I'm going to be compassionate, not a jerk. I'm going to be tender-hearted, not a jerk. I'm going to be forgiving, not a jerk. And I'm going to live a life of love, not a jerk. We live in a time where a lot of people who are not part of this family of faith have kind of antagonistic ideas about who we are. Uh, I'm kind of a poster child. Uh, I am a white, 50-year-old, male, evangelical, Southern Baptist preacher. I'm kind of poster child for the uh, many in the culture today just not really liking me because of that poster child status. 
Can, can I tell you, I don't think, I mean, some of it has to do with what we believe. We believe what God's word says. We don't bend to the cultural norms of the day if it's in violation of God's word, right? Okay, so this is absolute truth. We hold on to it as absolute truth. So some of it's like that, but you know, a lot of it, I believe, is that <laughs> the people out there who experience Christians just don't like us very much because we're not very nice. Now, we're jerks. Can I tell you, that's not the way it was for Jesus. The people in the culture who were the furthest from God, they were drawn to Jesus. Do you want to know why? Because he was kind. He was compassionate. He was tenderhearted. He was forgiving. And he lived a life of love. He showed grace to others. What would it look like in your relationships at work, especially with the toxic people? And they're toxic people, right? You, uh, if you don't know any toxic people, it's probably because you're the one. Um, <laughs> Y'all laugh because it's true. Y'all are like, I'm writing down the name of a person right now. We, it's hard to show grace to toxic people. The people that are always looking for a reason to gig you, to bite at you, to devour you. It's hard to show grace. But can I tell you, just because it's hard doesn't mean that that's an excuse not to do it. We want to live up to the name that Jesus has written on our heart, and that means we need to show grace to others. The second uh, component of living up to the name that Jesus has given us and, and, and living life God's way and uh, experiencing satisfied life Oh, by the way, having a gracious heart is of greater value than all the silver and gold in the world. I'm not being metaphorical. I'm being literal. Having a gracious heart is more valuable to God, to you, and to others than having all the silver and gold in the world. So why don't we invest more of our time in being gracious than we do in making coin, cash, and money? We need to live life God's way. Will you show grace to others? The second is to be humble. Now, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Not everybody knows that song, but it was popular back in the day sung by a guy named Mac Davis. Thank you very much. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. This morning I look in the mirror and I get better looking each day. <laughs> to know me is to love me. I must be one grand person, man. He said something else, but I couldn't say that. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. A silly song that paints a picture of so many hearts in this room, including mine. And yet humility is a hallmark characteristic of Jesus. 
You look at verse 2 of chapter 22. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is maker of them all. You know what that means? It means that every person, it doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have, every person in this room stands on the same stoop before a holy God. That all of us are responsible to him and all of us are accountable to him. We are dependent upon him. There is not one person in this room who gets to live life uh, 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 without accountability to God, eventual accountability. We are all um, responsible and accountable to the living God. And by the way, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you don't get to buy your way out of that accountability. Or how poor you are, you don't get to be poor out of that accountability. The rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Which leads to verse 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord, our riches, honor, and life. So uh, when we understand our place in the sight of God, we will be humble. Being humble is saying, I know that I am not all that and peanut butter too. Being humble means that I do not consider myself, my desires, my wishes, my ambitions as the center of the universe around which God and everyone else must revolve. Being humble realize, is a recognition of who I am in light of who God is and how I should respond and relate to people around me. This, after all, is the character of Jesus Christ. Uh, on, alongside uh, uh, Proverbs uh, 22, 4, you might write Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. The character of Christ. If I'm going to live up to the name of Jesus, I've got to be humble. Why? Because Jesus was humble. And Philippians 2, beginning verse 5, says, Let this mind, this attitude, this, this worldview, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and came in the form of a servant and, and in the likeness of a man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every name knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what Jesus did? He is God, and yet he humbled himself to become man and to die for sinners like you and me. That's humility. We need to understand that the way Jesus lived is the way we should live. By the way, Philippians 2, 1 through 4 tells us how we're supposed to live in light of that. We are to, uh, we are to uh, uh, look out not for our interests, but the other's interests, the interests of others. We are to consider the needs of others more important than our own. Uh, we need to be humble. Why? Because God resists the proud but gives grace, favor, to the humble. You want to experience satisfaction that is not found through bravado and machismo, male or female form of machismo. It's not found in me being the center of the universe. Rather, it's found when I am humble before God and humble with others. And here's another thing. If you're humble before God, you're not going to be boastful and proud in front of others. If you're boastful and proud in front of others, it's because there is a disconnect between you and, and humility before God. 
First Peter 5, uh, 5 and 6 really tells us that, that if, if we're humble before God, we're going to be humble before others. Will you commit to be humble? Again, this is, not, this is not an optional thing. This is a core component of what it means to live up to the name that Jesus has given us and to live life God's way and to experience a satisfied life. Show grace to others, be humble, and then finally, we need to run from sin. Do I need to talk about this too much? I, I hope not. I, I, I don't know that I can talk about it any more than you already know about it, but, but let me try just a couple of things. Remember verse 8. You sow sin, you reap sorrow. So in verse 3... Uh, the, the, uh, God tells us uh, a prudent or a wise person sees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on him unpunished. So if we're going to live life God's way, if we're going to live up to the name that is written on our heart, we need to see the temptation down the road and hide from it. We need to run from sin. Jesus said it in even more stark terms. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, he wasn't saying actually pluck out your eyes or chop off your hands. He was saying in a metaphor kind of way, you need to treat this with great seriousness. You need to take great pains to run from sin. Verse 5 tells us it's not just uh, the, the, the danger around us, but it's also the, the company we keep. Thorns and snares, verse 5 of 22, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Now, the crooked there are the people that are morally perverse. They're the ones that are wicked. They're the ones that are disconnected from God. They're the ones that are leading Pinocchio to the carnival to encage and enslave him, right? Uh, so, so thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul from that way, the way of the perverse, will be far from them. So it's not only do I run from the temptation of sin and the sin that so easily ensnares me, but I also need to keep at a stiff arm distance those who are embracing sin so that their sin doesn't lead me to sin. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I need to be watchful of those things that trip me up into sin and run from them but I also need to be aware of those around me and keep at a stiff arm distance those who are around me who are embracing sin that will perhaps lead me to sin. We need to take sin seriously, just as the Bible does, and we need to run from it. Run from sin, not rationalize sin. Rationalizing sin means that I try to redefine what sin is. Can I tell you that the Bible tells us what is sin and what is not? No matter how much people around you or me might want it to say something different, the Bible declares thus and such is sin, thus and such is not sin. And if we are choosing to walk a path that the Bible says is sin, then we are choosing sorrow for our soul and a dissatisfied life. We need to run from sin. We need to run from sin, and the best way to do that is by focusing on Jesus. I want you to hear Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
The scripture says, seeing then that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that's been set before us, setting our, uh, casting off every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, setting our gaze upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we cast off our sin, we run from sin. How? By focusing on Jesus, by focusing on how I can live up to the name that Jesus has branded upon my heart, how I can live faithfully. Guys, the way to a satisfied life, the way to a satisfied life is to live life God's way. And you live life God's way when you live up to the name of Jesus, the one who has rescued you and given you life. We live up to the name when we show grace to others, when we are humble, and when we run from sin. As you look at these three simple statements Perhaps you're thinking, that, that's, that's a little challenging, or I've already blown it so bad, or I don't know what to do from here. Can I tell you, in this moment, can I just encourage you that God is faithful? He's faithful in his love for you. He's faithful in his forgiving love for you. His desire for you to, be, uh, to live a satisfied life is no less today than it was yesterday. And in his desire and in his design, he maps out a course for us to experience his faithful love, his encouragement in the face of sin that we're running toward rather than we're running from. He, he gives us an energized heart to be humble. He gives us an empowered uh, heart filled with his grace to be gracious to others. This is what God does. He is faithful. So lean into his arms. Trust him. Trust him with your confession. Trust him with your repentance. Trust him to heal what's broken. Trust him to mend what's been shattered. Trust him to take the bad twists and turns that you've chosen in your life and to turn them toward a satisfied life under his hand of protection and provision. God is faithful. So turn to him and trust in him. Will you bow your heads with me, please? These next few moments, I just want to invite you, encourage you to talk to God about where you're looking for satisfaction. Are you looking to some other source to satisfy your soul, a change of friends or a change of atmosphere, a change of relationships. You think, if I can just get more money or if I can uh, have less bills, then I'll be satisfied. And you're ignoring the greatest enemy of satisfaction, and that is sin. Today, I invite you to run from sin through a repentant heart, through a broken spirit, trust God's loving compassion and grace and run from sin. Maybe you are struggling with pride. 
a lack of humility. You claim that you're humble before God, but you're not very humble around others. And that is the one thing that God requires of those who belong to him. Maybe today you need to confess pride and find the favor of God's faithful love washing you in his grace. Maybe you're not a gracious person. And God just pinpoints in you that you're not living up to the name of Jesus as a follower of Christ because you're not gracious to others. You're not showing the grace that God has shown to you. You need to call that what it is. It's called sin, and you need to turn from it. But all the while know that God is faithful to hear your cries, your confession, your repentance, your questions. He's he's faithful right now. So in these next few moments, as you talk to the Father, will you lean into his arms of faithfulness and allow him to do the designing work that he longs to do in your soul? No longer living a Pinocchio-type life, just going through motions. He longs to make you fully alive. So trust him. Father, right now, be faithful. And may we rest in the faithful love you show.